Welcome to the Old Galway Diary podcast. Each week, Tom Kenny and I, Ronnie O'Gorman, write a column in the Galway Advertiser. Before it goes to press, we contact each other and share what is filling the page that particular week. This podcast is that conversation. And I would add, we enjoy talking to you and would appreciate if you would give us a rate and review on the Apple Podcast app. Tom, good morning. Hello, Ronnie. Hi, Tom. Tom, I, I mentioned last week uh, the priest at, at Cresslow, and I didn't have his name last week, but now he's a, he's become almost a national figure. The it priest that conducted me. all those extraordinary funerals, yeah. and he made each one unique. You know, yeah. he had such... He did, he did. Yeah, his name is Father John Joe Duffy. Yeah. Now, he... Um, I heard him being asked, how how have you done this? Because an extraordinary burden on him. Now, he yeah. was supported by other religious people, obviously, and bishops came and went. But it really was his, you know, it was all his doing, really. That he set yeah. the pace. But, but he had a lovely phrase. He said, look, no, no, these people are my family. This is my family that have been, you know, so injured and so hurt. And... Yeah. You know, I have found the words in that context. And I thought, really, he was a very fine, he is a very fine man indeed. Oh, oh without question. I yeah. agree. Yeah. yeah. And with such dignity as well. Totally, totally. Yeah. And yet yeah. each each funeral he treated so individually, you know, as if it yeah. was the only one. And he, he did it so superbly. Yeah, here, here. I agree. You told me you were very impressed by a young man who spoke about his dad. Indeed, Hamish, yes. Uh, but he addressed the uh, congregation at his father's funeral. He was 12 years of age. Yeah. And <clears throat> he <clears throat> talked initially about his father. And then he told the congregation how lucky they all were to have their own families and to treasure them, to cherish them, to take each day as it comes yeah. and thank the Lord for each day with their family. And maybe he was kind of being influenced by Father John, Joe, I don't know, but uh, these were remarkable words from a 12-year-old, you know. Yeah. Uh, you would have expected them from the parish priest, but right, exactly. Fact, exactly. they were actually more potent coming from a young mm -hmm. man like that, I think. And he yeah. looked very vulnerable. He looked very vulnerable. Oh, indeed. And, of course, he was, too. You yeah. know? So it made it even more poignant, but also more courageous for him to do that. Yeah, extraordinary. You know? Yeah, extraordinary. Yeah, it took I, a lot of grit to get up on that pulpit and come out with those words. I know. What a wonderful man. He was yeah. inspired, inspired. Yeah, well, all of that now is put behind us a little bit. We'll have to see what the cause of the accident was. But, yeah, um, yeah. I'm, you know, I hope some television camera goes back to the village in a year's <laughs> time and, you know, uh, finds out how the village has survived, you know, what they have, yeah. what's happened in 12 yeah. months, say, you know. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Extraordinary yeah. coming together. 
Well, listen, Tom, we'll move on and uh, we'll talk about our own work now this week. What are you doing, Tom? What have you got in mind? Well, I am celebrating an event that happened 90 years ago this week. (coughs) On Saturday, in fact, to be precise, is the 90th anniversary of a plane taking off from Orden Moor. A Fox Moth plane. Uh, Captain Armstrong was the pilot. He had two passengers. He had Peggy Kenny, my own aunt, in fact, joking, and yeah. Kitty Curran, who would later become harbour master. Oh, but yeah. Also, very importantly, he was carrying mails. He was carrying post, uh, several hundred letters and cards. <clears throat> uh, and they flew with some difficulty, actually, uh, to Baldonnel in Dublin. The, sorry, the mails. Uh, the, our postmaster here at the time, uh, Mr. Lynch, he handed over these mails with some ceremony and the plane took off. But bad weather in and around Athlone meant they had to fly blind just a few hundred feet over ground for quite some time. Now, this was a feeder part of the overall journey, if you like, and it was sponsored by the Galway Harbour Board. The flight, the flight took 55 minutes. Right. It took the ladies four hours to get back home on the train, as it turned out. <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> at yeah. Baldonnel, yeah, there was a 30-seater monoplane waiting. This was described as a giant plane at the time. Remember, we're back in 1932. And there were 14 passengers on board already. Uh, the captain and pilot of this aircraft was a Colonel Charlie Russell. He was a very famous Irish aviation pioneer, actually, yeah. this man, uh, very, very well known in Galway. And so as the plane arrived from Galway, the Galway mails were transferred onto this uh, giant plane, as it was called. And within 45 minutes, they had taken off. They landed in Croydon uh, to refuel. Their next stop was in Rotterdam. Uh, where they had a quick bite to eat, and they took off within a half hour heading for Berlin. And they were very impressed as they were getting closer to Berlin because there were lights in in the landscape lighting up the way to this, which was regarded at the time as probably the best and most up-to-date airdrome, airport in the whole world. So... They were hugely impressed with all the lights on the airport to guide in the plane. So they were welcomed by a very lot of people, actually. uh, One of the directors of Lufthansa being one of the main people. The mails were handed over with great ceremony to the German post office. Now, what this meant was this was the first ever airmail flight between Ireland, between Galway and continental Europe. No. Galway and Berlin. So it was a very, very significant. Uh, and they did it to prove a point, which I'll get to it shortly. Okay. So they were handed over with great ceremony. And of course, Charlie Russell, the captain, he was the world's press wanted to meet him because this was an extraordinary air achievement and very important, not just to Ireland, but to Germany and all, to Europe, in fact. And that evening, the uh, the pilot and the uh, his passengers, they spent some time looking around 
what was then described as the most dynamic capital in the world. And they actually saw Nazis marching in uniform. Oh now, that puts it back in time, really, when you think of it. Oh, my goodness. And there were collections oh. being taken everywhere for parties in a forthcoming general election. Right. Anyway, they weren't there very long because they took off at a quarter to five local time the following morning. They went to Rotterdam. They landed back in Croydon again, and they were back in Dublin by four o'clock. So it took about 11 hours to get from Berlin back to uh, Dublin. Right. They didn't have any mail on the return flight, uh, and the plane didn't go on to Galway because it was too big for the runway in Ordenmoor. So now it was Colonel Charlie Russell who was the chief organizer and inspiration behind this flight. He was absolutely thrilled, Skinny. We've done what we said we could. We have brought the Galway Airmail to Berlin in record time. We have shown that we can affect a savings of two and a half days in the delivery of transatlantic mail between Europe and America. Yeah. Which was a very significant. Oh, that's huge! It's an astonishing story. I'm very. Yeah, yeah. It's an amazing. Now the the entire way mails because they picked up quite a lot of mail in Dublin as well. Yeah. They weighed seventy one pounds. Right. I can tell you. Now <laughs> in Galway, there were only three days' notice given of this flight, and this notice was in the form of a hand printed poster that was put up in the GPO in Eglinton Street, announcing the fact that this flight was going to take place. And uh, if anyone was interested in sending airmail on this flight, this was what they had to do, and these were the costs uh, thereof. Uh, and that is one of the illustrations I have this week, is this poster. It's very interesting. Uh, there were about 1,900 letters and cards in all on the flight. Mm -hmm. uh, about 600 of these came from Galway, some from the US, and most of them from Dublin. Uh, but from a phil philatelic point of view, these were hugely important. Yeah. The stamps and the cards uh, for the letter for the letters and the cards were sixpence a tanner. <laughs> so it, it was actually inspired by an event that had taken place three years earlier, uh, which I have written about before. And this was when an American airliner, or not airliner, I beg your pardon, an American liner called the Carl Shrew flew, uh, sailed from the U.S. into Galway. And the mails from this ship were promptly transferred uh, to Orden Moor, and they were flown by a Vickers Vixen plane from Orden Moor to Croydon. Uh, with a, one pit stop, one fuel stop in Baldon. And again, it was Colonel Charlie Russell uh, who did this. And this was the first ever Irish-English airmail flight as well. <laughs> so I have this extraordinary. Uh, it's an extraordinary story, Tom. I never... Yeah, it's that. a terrific story, yeah. <laughs> really? I, well, it is, yeah. yeah. Uh, there is also uh, what they call a cachet, which is the small stamp that was put on all of the mails from Galway. And finally, I have a photograph of uh, Colonel Charlie Russell. And all of this... Of the, of, the post, <coughs> of the postmark. Yeah, yeah. You do? That's, right. well, that's very interesting. Oh, yeah. That's a so very all of yeah. this information has come from Dr. Bridie Mitchell, 
well-known in Galway aviation circles. She has written a book on the Galway Flying Club and a number of articles. Mm-hmm. And I have pulled most of this <coughs> from an article she has written in a magazine called Flying in Ireland. Right. So thank you. Thank you, Bridie, for all your help. <laughs> well, that's a remarkable story. I absolutely love it. Absolutely. I never heard that story now before. Um, yeah. So wh- why did we not continue that? Um, you know, well, the air aerodrome in Ordenmore was very small, first of all, yeah, yeah. Uh, I suppose. And I don't know why is the answer. Yeah. Uh, I, I presume we were heading at that stage towards the Second World War, so that would have obviously wouldn't have been flying too many yeah. airmail flights to Germany. No, no. Some ten years yeah. later, you know. Yeah. Uh, but I don't know the answer to that question, yeah. Ronnie. The aerodrome is or more that that was considered also to be Galway Airport, wasn't it for a time? Um, yeah, it was the Galway yeah. Airport that that we yeah. know it, it was a fine little airport. There's no question, but the runway dipped. <laughs> it must have been, uh, you know, poor pilot. I often thought they're bombing along to take off, and suddenly the air the runway goes down a hill before it takes off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think. They were, they were afraid that might put Ryanair off coming into Galway. So they were looking at Ornmore Airport. Anyway, all that fell apart because Leo Varadkar said, I'm going to I'm not going to give you an airport, gentlemen. I'm giving you a motorway all the way from Galway to Shannon Airport, which all I right. think yeah. is a better deal in the end of the day. But um, yeah. Galway's had a long, a long tradition of airplanes, haven't we? You oh, know, indeed. Yes, yeah. indeed. You know, we, we've had quite a number of... Uh, of very important uh, historic aviation yeah. people, you know, Lindbergh yeah. came here, Lindbergh, for instance, yeah. and his wife. Yeah, uh, their their plane, which was could land on, which landed out in the bay. In fact, was towed into the docks. Yes, it was a war. It was a seaplane. Yes, source of wonder for yeah. the entire population for yeah. a day or two. Yeah, uh, there have been several. Yeah, several. Yeah. Well, Lindbergh was an extraordinary man, and uh, f- with film star looks and all of that, yeah. I think he took yeah. Yeah. by surprise. He was so so good. Oh, that's wonderful, really. I love that story. Yeah, yeah great, Tom. Okay, well, I'm looking forward to seeing those photographs. Now, you, you mentioned watching the Nazis marching around in 20, 90 years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I'm still slightly with them again for the last week, and I'm bringing to a conclusion uh, William Joyce's story. Um, now, uh, I don't, I, I won't delay over his last broadcast, which went out from Hamburg on July, April 30th, 1945. Uh, the day actually Adolf Hitler committed suicide, the day Berlin finally collapsed, uh, was captured by the Soviet uh, soldiers at a tremendous loss of life, but it was a great a symbolic victory for them. But Joyce and Margaret fled uh, from Hamburg. They went up to a small village, Tom, uh, on the Danish border. And uh, they didn't know, at least they were, they, they must, I, I don't know if they ever knew, but also going seeking refuge in that same village was a man, the Admiral Karl Donitz. 
Now, Donitz was Hitler's successor. He was a surprise choice because, <clears throat> excuse me, he was not a Nazi, but he was a very skillful man that had conducted a really vicious submarine warfare against the Allied countries. And he was uh, Hitler's successor nonetheless. He also went to that village and uh, uh, he was empowered, obviously, to to create a surrender or to sign a surrender. Now, don't forget, there was German armies all over parts of Europe uh, still in an occupied position. But there was this great moment, this hiatus of, of tension, of wondering, you know, is the war actually going to end? Everything is looks like it is, but still the soldiers have not been told to stand down. And Donuts smart and all as he was, he decided he'd try and do a deal with Eisenhower, the American Supreme Allied Commander, and, you know, ask him to, to give us a, a surrender with conditions. But Eisenhower said, absolutely no way. It's an unconditional surrender or nothing. But Donut still held out. So there was a few days of this anxiety. Now, meanwhile, of course, lots of soldiers were pouring in, allied soldiers were pouring into this small village, but they didn't interfere with negotiations because they this had to happen. There had to be a formal surrender. And in the end, Eisenhower said, look, if you don't agree to an unconditional surrender, I will you know, continue bombing your cities. I will give all our German prisoners over to the Russians. You have 24 hours to make up your mind. And of course, he made up his mind. Indeed, now, yeah. Yeah, and he, he, he rightfully uh, surrendered. But he didn't sign the surrender. Is he cute enough? He was cute enough. He got uh, someone else to sign it in France. And of course, Stalin insisted there was another signing ceremony in Berlin, the city he had captured. Anyway, uh, now, I don't think Joyce and Margaret probably knew this drama was being played out because, uh, you know, th they just carried on hoping that no one would recognize them. Now, it, the word went around, however, that there was this quiet English couple living on the edge of the village. And Joyce was collecting firewood when he met some curious soldiers, among whom was a Jewish German man, Geoffrey uh, Perry. Now, he had left Germany just before the war, Tom, and he adapted an English name. So once Joyce began to speak to them, Perry instantly recognized his voice. And when Joyce reached into his pocket for a cigarette, a soldier, fearing that he was reaching for a weapon, fired and injured William Joyce. He fell to the ground. And so Margaret and Joyce were brought back to England. Joyce on a stretcher, the famous photographs of Joyce on a stretcher. Yeah, amazing, uh, yeah. yeah, I know. I'm going to use one that one uh, as one of my pictures this week. And there was little, you know, he, he, if he was looking for forgiveness, there was no chance of it. I mean, there is little to admire in this man, William Joyce. He was oh. a Nazi thug. There's no question. And Britain, I assure you, had no interest in him. Uh, certainly they weren't interested in prolonging his life. Now, he was tried, as you might remember, on a very ancient charge of high treason based on the fact that he'd gone to Germany with a British passport. And therefore, it was argued he had allegiance to Britain. But the court heard 
that he'd never been a British subject, as we know. I told you before, he was born in New York in 1906, and he could not have been convicted for a country that was not his own. But anyway, the Attorney General, the famous man, Sir Hartley Shawcross, successfully argued that Joyce's possession of a British passport, even though he had misstated his nationality to get it, entitled him until it expired to British diplomatic protection in Germany, and therefore he owned allegiance to the king at the time he began working for the Germans. Of course, this was really, you know, turning logic uh, on his head because they were out to get Joyce. They despised him. Yeah. They despised him. They just couldn't yeah. wait to put him behind. Anyway, he was hanged, as we know, in Wandsworth Prison. Now, the trial and the decision to hang Joyce has been regarded by many people. I've seen several essays on it as really, you know, a judgment that was a blot on British justice. And the historian A.J.P. Taylor maintained that Joyce was executed for making a false declaration to obtain a passport, a misdemeanor that would normally incur a fine of two pounds. Yes. (laughs) Vengeance was so high in the British system, they got Joyce. Now, However, now this is interesting. The only interesting thing really about all of this, I think, is about his Joyce's wife, Margaret Joyce. Now, she was as British as warm beer and had also made anti-British broadcasts from Germany. And it could have expected that she would meet the same fate as her husband. But no, this is interesting now. Margaret was not charged with treason. After a period, she appears to have been mysteriously released from prison. Now, I was reading Nigel Farndale's biography of Joyce, and as recently as the year 2000 and 2005, a lot of documents were released concerning the whole Joyce story. And uh, uh, it seems it's possible that Joyce made a deal with his prosecutors not to reveal links that he had with MI5 in return for his wife, Margaret, who was known as Lady Haw Haw, in return that she would not be tried for high treason. In fact, her any case against her would be dropped. Now, I don't know how true that is, but this is what Nigel Farndale says. Now, yeah. that, that Joyce was an MI5 informant is probably no surprise to his character, Tom. But no. in, the, in the dangerous, <laughs> murky world of spies and traitors, Farndale suggests that Joyce was the protege of a very strange man called Maxwell Knight, a spy master who is described, and I got the quote from what this man was like, as a neurotic, an anti-Semite, and obsessed with the hatred of communism, who may have inspired Fleming, believe it or not, Ian Fleming, to create the character in Bond's book, The M Character. But this man really existed. And he was a, a regular visitor to the Joyce family home before the war. And it is it was he who tipped off Joyce when he was about to be arrested uh, on the very eve of the war, that he was about to be arrested, he and his wife, Margaret, and they would spend the, the, the war in jail. But the tip off uh, prompted Joyce to flee to Berlin. And I didn't give a reason for Joyce going to Berlin other than war was being declared. But now, if we believe this evidence, it seems that this man um, tipped him off and said, you're going to be arrested. You better get out of here. And so he goes to Berlin. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I pick up the story finally 
Joyce's daughter, Heather Yandelow. She met Margaret once. Margaret had remarried and she gave Heather a pile of her late father's letters, saying that she feared her new husband would sell them. Now, growing up in London, Heather says that she was aware of her father's voice on the radio. Other girls teased her about it. When she was 17, she heard that he was in prison and she heard he was sentenced to be hanged. And she asked her mother if she and her sister Diana could visit him in Wandsworth prison. Her mother, however, cautioned against it. But as Heather grew up, she began to have dreams and visions about her father. Now, she told me this herself. She believed he wanted to return to Galway. And after a long campaign by this woman, including a guest appearance on Gay Burns' Late Late Show, which as a shy person, she said she found an uncomfortable experience. The Home Secretary of the time, a man called Roy Jenkins, agreed to allow her father's body to be exhumed from the prison uh, graveyard and allowed it to be reinterred in Galway if arrangements could be made. And the mayor of Galway said, yes, he was satisfied that arrangements could be made and that Galway would receive the remains of William Joyce. So anyway, a very strange day, Tom. I know you weren't there. I, you were away, but I was there. August the 20th, 1976, William Joyce arrived in Galway. And after a Latin mass said by the late father, Robert Lee, the body in a white coffin was buried. Now, about 200 people attended. A large contingent of U.S. photographers were there. Uh, U.K. photographers were there. There might have been a U.S. one, but they were all U.K., all watching carefully. They were dying for some neo-Nazis to come forward and unfurl a swastika or something <laughs> like that. would give them a story for the next day. But nothing like that happened. It's just a strange atmosphere over the whole thing. A very strange place. Anyway, Heather, now this was new to me. In 2011, she appealed to the Criminal Cases Review Commission, asserting that not only had her father not been British and therefore not able to be a traitor to the British crown, but also the trial had been compromised by the deal he had allegedly done with the authorities not to reveal his pre-war links with MI5 in return for his wife's being spared. Well, I didn't tell you the appeal was Rejected out of hand. Of course, yeah, yeah. It wouldn't be looked at. Yeah. yeah. But I've been told, Tom, that Heather, who was a kind of a mysterious and a lonely figure, used to come to the uh, new cemetery in Bohemore every year and lay flowers at her father's grave. So oh, yeah. that's a long, long story, an extraordinary story of this guy who grew up in Galway, went to the jazz, got involved with the black, the black and tans, you know, you know, was a yeah. Nazi thug and is finally buried here. And his daughter was happy to think that he was finally at rest after a very yeah. turbulent career. So, yeah. So now it's one hell of a story is right. Right. Extraordinary story, isn't it? Yeah, really? yeah. It, is. yeah it is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Tom, we leave it there. And we'll okay. do else next week. All right. Yeah, I'll have to think of something for next week now. So will I. I run yeah. out of ideas. <laughs> All okay. right. Okay. It's yeah, Halloween. Right. Yeah. Look after yourself. Yeah. yeah. God bless. Bye, Tom. <laughs>